Welcome to The Green Docs. We're a podcast that talks about how the environment impacts women's and family health. And to start it off, here are some headlines you didn't know you needed to know. Yeah, first up. So, for example, did you know the CDC has issued a warning against cinnamon applesauce? This comes after dozens of children across 14 states have been found to have lead poisoning from the fruit packs. According to the Washington Post, it might be time to change your lawnmower out for a lamb mower. In North Virginia, a small business brings 12 sheep over to not only mow, but to weed and fertilize your lawn. And you've probably heard of twins, but how about two babies growing in two different uteruses in the same woman? That's what's happening in Alabama, where twin girls are both due on December 25th, growing in a different uterus. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nate. We're two OBGYNs who care about the environment and how it affects our patients. So in 2020, we published the first paper about climate change and pregnancy in a top medical journal. It had tables and everything. The day the paper came out, the New York Times wrote about our findings. And 10 hours later, Joe Biden tweeted at us. Then a bunch of other things happened. So now, like everybody else, we've got a podcast. Welcome to the Green Docs. Well, you might think it's November, we're done with the high temperatures, but as you've no doubt noticed, that is not necessarily true anymore. In this episode, we'll be talking with Ashley Ward, who's Director of Heat Policy Innovation at Duke University in North Carolina. Ashley's going to explain why we need to all be aware of heat, especially if you're pregnant or you have young children or both, and what policies are being put in place to help protect us all. I'm Bruce. I'm an OB in San Diego and an international keynote speaker, just back from Australia. And I'm Nate DiNicola, a private practice OBGYN and chief medical officer in Southern California, and the delegate to our national and international OBGYN societies on how the environment impacts women's health. All right, Bruce, uh, international keynote speaker. Should I be saying uh, good day? Good day, mate? <laughs> I tell you, I didn't hear that a single time. Nobody said anything about a Barbie. It was different than I expected and, and yet very much familiar. It's just kind of an interesting place. I've never been to Australia. It was a thrill to go there to give these presentations and a real honor. But uh, the thing that I heard, the expression that I heard that I think will stay with me is every time you walk into a restaurant there, as I did for basically three meals a week for two weeks, the first thing they do is they walk up to you and put out on a big smile and say, how you going? Nobody said good day in Australia. Goddamn. They wanted to know how I was going the whole time. My whole childhood is alive from Crocodile Dundee to Crocodile Hunter. I feel like I don't know what to expect from. I think, I think they've, they've moved on. Australia is in their post-Dundee phase. There are two things that we were worried about on your travel down to Australia. One was that everything is trying to kill you. Uh, you appear to have made it back intact, so seems like that didn't happen. But did anything try to attack you from you know, crawling under the, the door or coming up the sink? No, and, and I'm very happy to say that because I was watching out for it. Thank you for ruining my sleep on a few occasions. <laughs> there were a few things that were different, and it actually gets to that. First of all, uh, their seasons are, of course, completely the opposite of ours, which is very bizarre to think of You know, Santa in board shorts at the beach for Christmas. They burn coal still as their primary source of energy. They burn more coal per capita than any other place in the world. It's part of my talk. I uh, 
reference that in not so subtle a fashion. But the most dangerous thing I found about being in Australia is being in the cities. They drive on the wrong side of the road. Their steering wheels on the opposite side of the car and they drive going the wrong way. And everybody seems to have this same sort of directional delusion. But when you're a pedestrian and you're from, at least from the America, we're used to looking a particular way before we cross the street. But in Australia, if you look that way and then walk out into the street, you're going to get killed because they're coming from the other side and usually very fast. So that was the most dangerous thing I found being over there. So everything is trying to kill you one way or another. It's, it's out to get you in Australia. Is it okay? Is it like Europe where, you know, it's just you're on the side of the street and the steering wheels on the opposite side of the car. And so if you're head on head some, with somebody like playing chicken, you have to break to the opposite side. Is that how it would go if you were? Right. And, and even on the sidewalk, I noticed I would, you know, politely go to the outside of the sidewalk. But if I was going in a particular direction, they were all coming at me on that side and I had to get over to their right as opposed to their left. So I just found walking around rather confusing. All right. So next question. Did you have any low flying helicopter tours near alligators? (laughs) (laughs) No, but in that same vein, I did discover a really cool type of underwear that they sold at one particular store. I was in this town that's called Byron Bay, which is kind of a, a surfing mecca. And uh, it's about eight hours by car north of Sydney, but I stayed there for several days. And I ended up walking into this store and they had this hemp and organic cotton underwear. And I've never liked my underwear, but I I just figured at this point in my life, if I ever find underwear I really like, I'm going to stock up. So these were the softest and just most pleasant uh, fabric I've ever seen for underwear. And I went back in there three times because they were expensive and I bought five pairs of these underwear. And frankly, I'm just rather excited about them. Well, where better to get underwear than down under? (laughs) (laughs) God, did I set you up for that? And and for for anybody who didn't get the reference to the low flying helicopters and alligators, go check out last episode where we discussed a headline and how that led to a mating frenzy among crocodiles. But anyway, I'm very pleased to report that I had uh, the talk that I gave to this national conference of OB doctors in Australia and New Zealand, and it went off very well. Uh, and I heard from a nonprofit that I promoted that they got a number of new signups of doctors the same day that I gave my talk. So uh, I was very pleased to see that it made the whole trip worthwhile. Enough about Australia. What's been going on with you back here in the United States? Well, speaking of things that are popular in Australia, they're, they're known for their wine country and their Shiraz. Uh, I've been attending a number of wine events lately. Kind of just uh, all of a sudden, they, they, like a few in a, in a two-week time. The first was a Mother's Day brunch that we, uh, I took my mom to. It's um, at this place in Newport Beach called the Newport Beach Vineyards. I, didn't, I never knew this place existed, and it's right in my backyard. They had a, um, a, it was called their Wine and Goat Brunch. I'm sure you've heard of these before. No. <laughs> Please go on. <laughs> it's not the most common pairing you would have with, with wine to have goats. But basically, at this vineyard, they also have some farm area, or at least where they have some farm animals, and they, they have their own goats there on site. They give you the wine tasting, you get a, you get a brunch, they kind of give you the tour. At the very end, they bring out their, their goats, Winnie and Zoe, and you get to just hang out with them. Now, this was something of a redemption story for myself. Because one of my earliest childhood memories was being headbutted by a goat. 
<laughs> and I had told Kendall this, and it was part of my concern about going to this wine and goat brunch. So the idea was that, uh, you know, things have changed. I'm adult now. Should, should be able to handle these goats. Uh, but I got to tell you, they kind of just have it in for the Dinicola family because nobody got headbutted, thankfully. We're, we're tall enough to avoid that. But they started, they started eating our clothes. Like my mom's <laughs> dress had a flower print on it. And they came up and started just gnawing on the flower print. Uh, at one point, my jacket was hanging like off on one of the other chairs. And they came on and started to chomp on that. Lovely event, but man, the, the goats, as advertised, they will chomp on anything. It sounds to me like you need to uh, do some background research on your family genealogy. There might have been some prolonged goat conflict buried in there somewhere that these goats have a memory of. I mean, yeah, this, this epigenetic grudge goes deep. Uh, <laughs> the other wine event was, was much different. Uh, it was up in Los Gatos for uh, the Ilovu folks, uh, who we interviewed on from a prior season, Noel and Santosh. And they were hosting a fundraiser for um, Ilovu, but also to raise awareness about um, maternal health and areas where we can improve. Uh, and it was in this new winery, new, new, new-ish winery. It's about five years old, called Prolific. And I got to say, for especially for young winery, their wines held up. Very nice. So we've both been eating well and drinking even better. On to the headlines. Yeah, things that don't, uh, don't improve your health on the, on the fruit side. The CDC and the FDA are both calling attention to these cinnamon applesauce fruit packs, mostly geared toward children. And basically, dozens of children have been identified as having elevated lead levels after eating these, some even eight times high the threshold. And by the way, there really is no safe limit for lead in children. Zero is the number we're going for, de minimis at, at worst. And in my work with the Pediatric Society, we've had a chance to meet with uh, the past EPA director, Gina McCarthy. And it was very clear, like this is a, a scientific consensus. Children should not have lead in their system. Eight times the bare minimum is, is quite high. It seems like it, it's coming from the cinnamon sticks, perhaps, or the way the cinnamon gets into the flavoring. And the warning is a bit specific. They are calling out three brands in particular to be aware of. These are Schnucks, Wanabana. Like banana, but with a W, Wanabana, and Weiss, because the Fute Puree puree has has high levels of lead in them. And I think it's important to point out that lead, again, no safe levels, but lead in children's bloodstream can lead them to having headaches and nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. They may become uh, lethargic, and they might get anemic, and worse things can happen as well. So lead is not just a Something that sounds bad, it actually is highly toxic, particularly to children. Yeah, it's a neurotoxic. It, it interferes with brain functioning. This is a common joke that's said sometimes whenever people have an issue with Congress, they have found lead in the pipes under the Russell House building, for example. <laughs> uh, and it's a little bit, you know, it's kind of sad here because lead was one of the things we thought we had solved. Uh, we moved to unleaded gas. We've uh, removed lead piping from a lot of homes. We've talked in the past with, with Jeannie Connery, a prior guest, about how lead and lipstick rose to attention, partially because it's so rare now. Uh, a bit of a step backwards here. We've got to pay attention to these, but I suppose you could point out that at least we caught it quickly and uh, it won't be mass disseminated. From your reading of this, did you get the idea that it had something to do with the, these fruit treats being in pouches? Was it that delivery form that made this worse? Do you think this is the sort of thing that's that needs to be checked across other manufacturers, or is it just isolated to these few companies? Well, two things to say there. First, checking baby food or, or children's food 
just like prenatal supplements we talked about in the last episode, is, is woefully under-scrutinized. Uh, there, there, there needs to be a lot more testing on these for things that we really worry about as far as toxic contaminants like heavy metals, like lead. But I, I don't think, the second thing to talk about is the packaging. The packaging, at least from, from what I'm seeing so far, doesn't seem to be the, the culprit. But packaging often has its own issues. When it's canned packaging, those can have preservatives and uh, endocrine disrupting chemicals in them. And when they're like that plastic line packaging, like you get a fast food, those have uh, this chemical family called phthalates. Hard to spell, kind of hard to pronounce, P-H-T-H-L-A-L-A-T-S. But these phthalates are, you can tell that a few times, the phthalates disrupt hormones. So if you eat things that have been sitting in phthalate-lined packages for a long time, that then are heated up where it soaks in more of the resins, you're going to get a higher dose of that hormone disruption. Separate mechanism to how uh, we worry about lead and heavy metals, but also something to be aware of and pay attention to. To move on to something slightly less toxic and serious, this is actually a happy story about the lamb mowers. Apparently, there is a, a business that caters to residential clients in North Virginia that's doing rather well. And instead of bringing over the usual blowers and mowers and all that loud and, and uh, fume spewing equipment, the guy brings over 12 sheep and then lets them roam across the lawns of his clients. And they not only cut the grass, they mow the grass in their own way, but they also take out weeds and they fertilize the lawns as well. And apparently these lambs are rather expert at this whole process. I guess they've had a number of millennia to get good at this. And it, what it reminds me of, Nate, is the stories that we've been telling lately on this podcast about how nature just does things better. We talked about in the last episode about how bacteria in Japan have learned to digest plastic and recycle it uh, way ahead of, of all the brilliant minds in the human species. So uh, to me, it's in a way not all that surprising. It does go back perhaps thousands of years, uh, many grasslands and pastures. I probably have been tended to by not only by lamb, but other 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 kind of hooved animals like the goats that are, you know, that have it out for you and your family. And in the early 1900s, the White House lawn and the area around the Lincoln Memorial was tended to by sheep. And now in Europe, lamb are being used to help, I guess, make the forests less uh, prone to fires. And even in California, at the University of California in Davis, they use lambs to keep to keep the uh, the greenery around the campus in good shape. To me, it's uh, a nice, quiet, non-toxic, pesticide-free way to, to mow lawns. And I, I kind of like the idea of these lambs walking around. And, and if you need a sweater, there's always one not too far away. <laughs> win, win, win all around. <laughs> now, was this, was this a practice you saw in Australia? Is this something else you brought back from down under? I did not notice that. But then again, it's getting to be their summertime. So maybe their lambs have been put away for, for the season. Yeah, as I'm thinking about it, I, I suppose if somebody were mowing the lawn outside my place, it would be much, I think it'd be quieter to have a bunch of lamb out there chomping away and even walking around rather than the, the very loud noise pollution hedge trimmers that we frequently fight against in our, in our podcast recording. All right. Yeah. What about that third headline? Yes. Let me tell you about this. Uh, first of all, this is just a story that I find interesting. And I, I think people who are following women's health and thinking about pregnancy just find these things interesting. There's a woman in Alabama who is pregnant with twins, and she has two babies, but in two different uteri. She has, she has what's called uterine didelphus, which is um, basically where you get two separate sets of the whole cervix uterus system. So during embryology, 
there's basically two tubes that fuse to form the uterus and the cervix. And sometimes they don't fuse all the way together and they form usually one dominant, one smaller one, and only one is really active. But in rare cases, you get basically two sets. And that's what this woman has. So that by itself is rare. Somehow, she has become pregnant with a viable baby, a viable growing fetus in each one. And based on what I can tell from the story, it seems like they're about the same gestational age. They say they're both due around December 25th. So I know Christmas always overshadows Thanksgiving, and I guess we're doing that here on the show a little bit also. Our Thanksgiving <laughs> episode, we've got a Christmas headline. But pretty amazing that this has happened just from a statistical standpoint. Had you ever seen this in your career, a woman with uterine diadelphus at all? If I did, it was maybe once or twice over the course of nearly 30 years. So it is exceedingly rare. It's usually the kind of thing, as you say, that's picked up on ultrasound and it's a complete surprise because to be that woman or to examine that woman, there's nothing that really jumps out that seems different. So you might see a little bit of a horn coming off of what, what we just called basically a it's an accessory uterus, but it's just a stump of sorts. It doesn't communicate through the vagina. I doubt seriously there are more than a handful of these cases reported ever. Ever. So exceedingly rare. Yeah. And I, I brought it up again. I think it is just kind of a point of interest uh, to, to know about these rare things and talk about how it might relate to other more common things. It's not known how uterine didelphus or these two separate uteri form. Uh, it's thought to be, of course, genetics always plays a role. But I, I do mention that when it comes to other uh, uterine malformations, the hormone-disrupting chemicals are often involved in one way or another. And so I can't say it was involved, it, you know, it's what happened here. But uh, in past experiences with uh, things like DES, which was a birth control way back, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, the way it created uh, cervical cancer and other uterine problems was by disrupting hormones. And it acts on the same kind of general anatomic process that, that would be involved in normal uterine formation and where it doesn't fuse, this thing like uterine didelphus. So one, one, one example of things to, to be on the lookout for. I definitely want to hear what happens with this delivery. And I'm going to guess a complicated C-section, but who knows? I'm really curious how they deliver because, you know, again, depending on how similar the gestations are or even just how labor happens with two separate systems, you could almost have one deliver a day or weeks before the other one. So they, they might get away with mm -hmm. avoiding the C-section. But we will, we will be looking to follow up around Christmas time. Could be a fun headline to, to revisit. Yeah, I hope those babies do great and mom does very well and, and uh, we'll be telling good news when we update that story. We are going to come back with an interview with Ashley Ward. We're really looking forward to talking to her. We'll see you soon. Welcome back. We are very, very pleased to be able to talk to Ashley Ward today, who's the director of the Heat Policy Innovation Hub at the Nicholas Institute for Energy, Environment, and Sustainability. That's a mouthful. At Duke University in North Carolina. Welcome, Ashley. Thank you so much for giving us some of your time. Thank you for having me. So, Ashley, uh, we have to ask right up front. This is our Thanksgiving episode. Do you have a lot of uh, a lot on your plate this Thanksgiving? Are you are you cooking a turkey? Are you hosting <laughs> folks, or do you get to show up somewhere and and just do the eating? Yeah, I have a big, loud Southern family, so we have a great time at Thanksgiving and go to my parents' house, and it's a big day and lots of fun. Duke University, of course, has a, a huge following there in North Carolina and, and globally. 
There's also other colleges in the area. Do you have any rivalries within the family? Are there any Tar Heels you'll be seeing over Thanksgiving and making some wagers with? So, you know, I am a Tar Heel. Uh, <laughs> really? And, yeah, then all of my family is from Durham. So my, my uh, you know, all of my family, they're big Duke fans. I went to UNC. My brother and his wife and kids went to NC State. My husband went to East Carolina. All of them are rivals with each other. And so it's a lot of good fun. Um, but yeah, um, there's actually quite a few of us Tar Heels over at Duke. Okay, so I have to tell you this real quick. For our National OB Society uh, called ACOG, they have a leadership retreat. And I got to go one year. And it was on North Carolina's campus in Chapel Hill. Just gorgeous, you know, gorgeous campus. You kind of feel like you're dipped in periwinkle from the moment you step on, <laughs> on, on campus. And so we're staying at the nice hotel right there on, on campus. And Carolina. Yeah. Carolina Inn, yes. And everywhere you look, it's just, it's just gorgeous Tar Heel blue, things like that. Except for one spot, when I was down in the weight room doing some exercising, on the punching bag, they had a, blue, a Duke Blue Devil. And I thought, <laughs> this rivalry runs deep. It runs deep, yes. And there, there are folks who are friends um, most of the year, except for basketball season. So... <laughs> And, and this is a peaceful rivalry. So at the at the Thanksgiving table with all these different interests, there's no food fights that break out or anything like that. No, no. And I, you know, I always I'm pulled because I grew up in a Duke household, right? And then I went to Carolina, and of course I love uh, UNC, and I have all three of my degrees there, and um, just love it. As you said, it's beautiful, and my experience there was incredible. And also, you know. Came from a Duke household, work at Duke now, love working at Duke. It's a great environment for what I'm trying to do. I'm kind of, you know, I know it's unpopular, but I straddle both and it's, it's you know, tricky. Well, you're, you're talking to the right audience for, for doing both because OBGYNs can never make up our mind. You know, we're always like clinic and surgery, OB and GYN, maternal and fetal medicine. So we can, we can sympathize there. Uh, but speaking of your role at Duke, uh, tell us a little about your, your job, because I'm, I'm not sure everyone would know this job or this policy hub even exists in a lot of places. Uh, you specialize in studying heat and policies around solving heat problems? Yes, and I guess it makes sense to say a little bit of a, of a step back just a little bit. And this was, you know, many, many years ago and uh, almost 10 years ago. And they said, you know, go out, talk to uh, rural communities in North, Carol North and South Carolina about climate change. And I thought this is going to be great fun. And um, <laughs> when I landed in those communities, you know, I really expected that they would say, let's talk, you know, hurricanes where, you know, hurricanes really impact the coastlines in both places and, and certainly the coastal plain in both states. But honestly, I arrived and they said, let's talk about heat. And that kind of took me off guard. And so I think the point there is that communities have long recognized heat as an issue that affects the people that live in their communities and something that needs to be addressed. And then as I went on to do more research in this topic, both at the Southeast Regional Climate Center with NOAA, you know, I realized science was actually starting to really come along on this process. And last year, Duke announced its climate commitment. And it's a university-wide commitment to prioritize climate in everything we do, from undergraduate education to research to I mean, you name it. And they sort of informally cast a net out to faculty and staff on campus and said, give us your big ideas. And I'd been thinking about this heat issue for a long time and you know, keeping up with everything going on. And I felt like there was no one entity in the U.S. whose mission it was to sort of combine the lessons that we're learning from science with insights from communities to help us 
develop innovative policy solutions. I felt like the policy space had not advanced along with science or communities. And so there needed to be some kind of entity willing to do that work. And the Nicholas Institute, that is in fact what we do. So it was a good home for it. And I proposed this program and they said, yes. So here I am. That is fabulous. And I've got 17 questions, but I'll just start with two. First of all, you've been in the South for, it sounds like your life, just like I've been in Southern California. I've noticed changes around just our climate here. There are specific things that just seem very different to me. So my first question is, what is different to you over the course of your life there? And then can you give us some concrete examples of policies? Because a lot of people aren't in the policy space and may not know, you know, what's an example of something you're working on or something you've been able to do and how it protects people? Sure. I think one of the biggest changes I've seen in the Southeast, and I think, you know, this is what climate scientists have talked about and what we expect to get worse is over the summer, you know, summer period, right? The heat season, which is typically May to September is getting longer. So we're, we're losing our shoulder seasons as they're called. So we're getting warmer weather earlier and it's hanging around longer. The other big change is we're seeing not necessarily more number, a greater number of days with higher temperatures during the day in the Southeast what we're seeing is a greater number of overnights where the temperature remains stagnantly high overnight. So the difference between the daytime and the nighttime, that gap gets smaller and smaller here. Now, that's different than what you see in the Southwest. In the Southwest, we're certainly seeing greater, you know, more days of extreme high temperatures, right? The lesson there is that climate change, especially when it comes to sort of our heat regime, looks very different depending on where you are. And for this part of the country, overnights is really going to be an issue that becomes a significant issue. And pushing that heat season, particularly into like the academic year, is going to challenge the infrastructure that we have with schools and everything else here. What is it like talking to the communities about this uh, changing heat pattern? And I ask this because I, like Bruce, currently live in Southern California and was, was born and raised here. But for residency, I lived in, Tula- I lived in New Orleans, uh, where I was at Tulane. And then I worked in Washington, D.C. for about five years in health policy. So these are areas that get you know, some version of seasons. And I would often hear people say they kind of liked it when it was warm, heading up to you know, Thanksgiving and, and Halloween. They, they, they were almost excited about this you know, endless summer. And it, that, that really made me concerned because on the one hand, I got it. It was kind of nice to walk around in, in November and not have to bundle up uh, for a bike ride. But at the same time, you know, I knew academically how hazardous it was. So do you hear any of that from the the Southern communities? Oh, yeah. I mean, the misperception of risk around heat is is a huge problem and, and something that needs to be addressed. I think, you know, it's a little bit seductive, right? You know, hey, it's, it's great to have Thanksgiving and people be in short sleeves. And but I think this past heat season really in quite spectacular fashion. Uh, showed the world what what it means um, to have a, a real issue with extreme heat, and I would say excessive heat, even not just extreme. And I guess getting back to Bruce's question about what does policy look like in the U.S., we have no federal cooling standard. So what that means is that there is no standard that requires prisons be air conditioned, affordable housing or public housing be air conditioned, public schools be air conditioned. Rest homes and you know, long-term care facilities are not required to be air-conditioned. 
There are no moratoriums on cutoff for, for during heat season for power like there is for cold weather. And so, um, you know, how do we shape policy, which are certainly going to be really serious issues for some of the most vulnerable in our communities? Think about who live and, and operate in all of those scenarios that I just described. The Government Accountability Office last year estimated 38,000 public schools in the U.S. that lack adequate HVAC. It's easy to think, oh, great, they're probably Midwest or Northeast and it'll be fine. No, I think we would be shocked. That's 40% of all public schools in the U.S. lack adequate HVAC. And the truth is most of those schools are located in municipalities that have low credit ratings, for example. It's a really feel-good policy to say we're going to do a cooling standard, a federal cooling standard, and universal air conditioning in all public schools. That's going to feel great. That is almost impossible to implement because who pays for that? Who adopts the burden of that? That is the, lo- the locality. It, you know, school infrastructure upgrades are paid for by those school systems. And so, as I just pointed out, these are also school systems who likely have are low resource and have low credit ratings. So even their access to dollars to pay for them is really hard. Innovative policy solutions then looks like not only coming up with what would be the correct policy response to that problem, the need for universal air conditioning in schools, with also the appropriate mechanism to implement that. That means getting the financing sector on board with how we do this. So that is what an innovative policy solution looks like, because just making a mandate, a regulation, you know, we're not going to regulate our way out of that problem. And so without the adequate backstop to help communities address it is ineffective policy. So the policy has to actually work. And you're not just there cooking up ideas in an ivory tower. You're thinking about the practicalities, which is uh, really good to hear. Now, I happen to notice behind you, Ashley, there are five representations, six representations of the globe. So are you thinking beyond uh, your corner of the world? Are you thinking nationally and internationally with your work? Yeah, the hub works nationally. You know, I made the argument to Duke that we are situated in the region of the country that has some of the highest exposure and some of the worst health outcomes associated with heat. And it makes sense for Duke to be a leader here, particularly because our state friend, our, our friends at our state universities are, can be, can be limited in what they can do or say around the topic of climate change regarding their state legislators and wanting to keep, you know, sort of the be neutral, right? Duke has a privilege here and that as a private institution, we're able to maybe push the boundary a little bit more than some of our friends at state institutions. And so I'm glad to see Duke doing that, right? I also think that there are a lot of lessons to be learned from the global South here. There are many communities in the global South who are also low resource communities who have also lived for you know decades and uh, with excessive heat, extreme heat. And there's a real need to sort of share lessons learned about how communities are dealing with this topic from the global South to the global North. Usually we think of lessons learned from the global North to the global South, and I would advocate we need exactly the opposite here. So I've been learning about different building construction that captures wind, some of it that flows wind under, I mean, over top of water that's flowing um, under buildings um, that then cools, you know, 15 degrees cooler inside when this happens and then exits the hot air. Thinking about how other societies have dealt with the issue of heat over millennia is something we could all learn a little bit from. 
Yeah, and I want to get back to the topic of uh, the school environment a little bit. Uh, you know, as, as an OBGYN, I, Bruce and I take care of pregnant women who, of course, are then raising families of, of school-age children. Uh, and in fact, the, the way that I came into my current role as a liaison was because the pediatricians came to the OBGYN saying, look, by the time the, the kids are getting to us, it's almost too late in some cases. Like we need to intervene earlier in, in some of these environmental uh, impacts. There, there might seem to be some obvious things that are good about not overheating in school, but do kids perform worse academically when the classrooms are too hot? Is that something we can, we can clearly say? Oh, yes. Research is pretty conclusive that um, when temperatures exceed, I think it's 81 degrees, um, I'd have to really check, but I'm pretty sure that's the threshold, that the retention, particularly in math and science, declines. And so I think it's important that people realize that when we're talking about indoor temperatures at schools with no air conditioning, we're talking well above 81 degrees in these schools. It gets hot. And so a lot of times they have to cancel school. Um, We also have the issue with student athletics, and it starts to put student athletes at risk. And it's not just student athletes. You have a kid that does band practice on the football field in the middle of the afternoon, they're at risk too. So any kind of outdoor activity that students do on a regular basis, and, you know, there's lots of intersections here, right? Like for women, uh, since you're OBGYNs, one of our big sort of focus areas, women's health and heat. And I often say heat affects women at every stage of their life cycle. When we're talking about retention of math and science, this is already a topic in which we want girls and young women to be able to excel at and creating an environment that makes it even more difficult to do so, right, is, is not good. Women are also athletes. One of the things that's been very frustrating for me, I have two daughters and, you know, my youngest daughter is an athlete. And going through high school, she was a competitive uh, tennis player, happening at the same time, women's tennis, as football season. All of the heat standards for student athletics centered around football. You know, women's tennis is playing at the same time. Soccer's playing at the same time. Cross country is playing at the same time. Thinking about uh, how young women are affected by, you know, all of these things. It means that we need to expand our scope of how we think about policies. It's not just about equipment that they wear, days on of equipment on and off, right? We need to think about the surfaces they're playing on. My guess is it's significantly hotter on that tennis court than it is on that grass field. So, you know, things like that, we need to really start to incorporate into our planning and preparedness for school systems when it comes to to heat. Not just, it's not just learning. It's all of the activities that go on around a school, in a school. it's a really good point. It's not just about the high school kids that end up having to go to the emergency room for during you know, after football practice in 100 plus degree heat. And I noticed from that heat policy interview that was conducted recently with one of the fellows at the center, you use the wet bulb globe temperature. So you're really getting very specific and trying to get better data. And I don't want to get way down into the weeds with this. But it does sound like what's important is it's not just for high school football players. It's for girls and it's it's really probably starting as soon as kids get to school because they all have PE. At least I hope they still do. Exactly. And I think we want to, you know, the idea is to create a learning environment, but also a social environment, a community environment for um, children and adolescents. Um, For a lot of young people that are in school, this is their place of opportunity for them and, um, you know, a place where they may not be have a safe outdoor place at home. And, you know, sometimes at school is the main place that they get that opportunity. So I think you're thinking about all of these things, the entire sort of and community environment around a school is really important on this topic. And, 
That's why we need smart policy, uh, not just feel-good policy, right? Well, yeah, on that note of feel-good policy, because everything you're saying makes, makes such perfect sense, like academically, athletically, girls and boys, men and women, everyone seems to benefit from having a more uh, controlled environment, or at least not being overheated all the time. But then there does come the issue of, okay, well, that sounds really good, but how do we pay for it? Or what else can we do? In Los Angeles recently, there was a city ordinance that all new rental properties had to have air conditioning. And so it sort of shunted the, the burden to the, the property owners, which of course had, had its own controversy. But the reason they were implementing this policy was that they were citing health reasons, that it would decrease their admissions to the emergency room. For communities who are looking at this saying, this makes sense to have some kind of heat standards and, and policies to help it, but the pay for is difficult to, to figure out. What else can they do to help make this happen or to, to you know, make their children be in a safer environment? So there's a couple of answers to that. There are federal programs that exist, like the LIHEAP program that exists that help people pay for and, um, you know, not only to install cooling, but also their monthly cost for cooling. There are also community block grants from HUD that also will help provide funding. So this is what I would call funding, funding being grants that you don't have to pay back. BRIC from FEMA also provides funding for com- at the community level. I want to have a caveat about HUD and, and FEMA, though. These are extraordinarily difficult programs to apply for, right? So some of these applications are 100 pages or more, maybe 300 you know, in length, and they require pretty sophisticated analysis on benefit-cost analysis to what you're doing. Now, I will say the Biden administration has been probably the most proactive here in reducing some of those requirements specifically for heat. There are currently no standards developed that are agreed upon for um, benefit cost analysis for heat, which means that if I'm a community and I'm trying to apply to get these dollars, right, that I can't really adequately fill out, complete that portion of the grant application, which makes my grant application less competitive. However, the other side of that is the financing side. And the truth is the financing sector has not totally worked out how they're going to deal with this yet. I mean, this is something they're still actively trying to figure out. How do we reconcile the risk of that kind of investment? It's a question that is openly discussed. It's on the forefront of of many of those that I know that work in finance and investment and the municipal bond market. And and so that is a to-be-determined question. Also, I don't want to I don't want to downplay the importance of helping people just get through the day because obviously that's so critical. But I have two really vital questions as we begin to wrap this up. One of them is November 2nd was the climate commitment game at Duke. And I want to know what that is about and who won. And the other thing, Ashley, is what has come across your desk recently that gives you hope? What are you feeling good about that you've seen lately? Okay. So the climate commitment game, I'm not sure what that is. There was a football game on November 2nd, and it was part of, yeah, that was part of Duke's program to honor their climate commitment in general. So I guess the football game was devoted or... uh, Oh, it was a promotional event for the climate committee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I don't know if you... uh, Duke recently lost their bell to to Carolina a couple of days ago in the big football. It was a heartbreaking game. So I think that's what's on everybody's mind here right now. The very last minute, UNC pulled it out, and they keep the victory bell. 
And, you know, there's a lot of glum faces on campus, but uh, yeah. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a rough season, I think for Duke athletics in some cases. um, Yeah. But these, these traditional basketball schools are really starting to step up in football. I I, I can say it. So I went to Notre Dame undergrad, so I'm, you know, fighting Irish fan. We circle those games in the schedule between Duke and North Carolina. Those Those are tough matches every year now. And what gives me hope? Let me think about what gives me hope. As bad as it sounds, this past summer, I think, was a real wake-up call for people. And I'm hearing people talk about and think about heat. You know, I, I've always been so frustrated that there isn't more attention paid to the topic of heat. We don't plan for hurricanes just during hurricane season. We plan for hurricanes year-round. And the infrastructure that we've built to do that with tabletop exercises, action plans, standards and metrics of how to measure impact, all of those things that are required for people to be able to do their job, that all exists for hurricanes. It doesn't exist for heat. And so a few things that give me hope, the Biden administration has put more toward this to this topic than any other administration. That means money flowing out of the IRA and IIJA and investment and things like the NIHIS program at NOAA. It's going to mean real action happens on the ground. The, you know, I have great hope that communities are able to obtain these dollars and use them to help protect their communities. I hear the media talking about heat in ways they've never done so before. I field media calls, especially during heat season, multiple times a week. And I think the media are a critical partner and helping people understand the risk associated with heat. I think uh, particularly under the Sun Belt in the U.S., people think, oh, it's, you know, we're used to being hot. It's hot, whatever. We'll suck it up and do fine. But, you know, people are not understanding the risk that heat poses to their health and well-being. And so the media is a critical player here in in ringing the alarm bell and helping people understand that everyone is at risk for heat. Those things are really important. The other thing I think is important is we're seeing the private sector start to lean in on this topic too. Insurance. There's now parametric insurance for heat. Marsh McLennan has written. So that's really wonderful. You see the finance industry coming forward and saying, okay, so how can we incorporate heat into our climate risk models and what can we do? So we're seeing new actors enter the space on heat that haven't entered the space before. And I think that's a game changer, honestly. This is how we get incentives for other people to act, right? And so these are all things that give me hope. And the final thing is every time I talk to a group of students and young people, they give me great hope because they are motivated around this issue. They care about this issue. They want to see change. They have grown up in an era of climate change where they've really lived some of the worst consequences so far, and they're motivated to action. So I'm, that always gives me hope. That is a fantastic answer. And and I have a feeling if I had let you, you could have gone on for a while longer with more things. So (laughs) I think we all have to keep this in mind that this problem is growing and getting more dangerous. But at the same time, the solutions are being amplified and spreading and collaboration is happening. And there's a lot of great stuff. A lot to be thankful for in that answer you just gave us, Ashley. Yeah, that space where it's everybody's doom and gloom, right? So I do have one thing to ask you before we wrap up. Because as, as an OBGYN and somebody who writes clinical guidelines for our national society, we give a lot of guidance toward the kind of individual counseling. What can a doctor tell their patient uh, in, in the exam room? And we will cover some of that at the very end of this episode for just those individual guidelines. But we have the policy expert here with you. If somebody was listening to this and persuaded by the message and thought they could do something in their community, what level of policy would you direct people to? Should they be looking at 
like city council? Should be looking at countywide, statewide, or should this be top of their list when they're looking at uh, you know national elections coming up? Where can people have the greatest impact? Well, certainly I would love to see federal action, right? But that requires an, an act of Congress. And right now, Congress is in our most functional body. And so um, I would also say that your state and local government has more to do with your daily life than I think most people appreciate. I'm really pushing your state legislators to pass, you know, you can have state level occupational guidelines for heat. You can have state level cooling standards. Um, there's only one state in the entire Sun Belt who has um, universal air conditioning for prisons. You know, that's Tennessee. And so outside of that, no air conditioning is required in prisons. Thinking about schools and prisons and, and public housing, and which, by the way, more women live in public housing and affordable housing. And so it definitely disproportionately affects them. So things like you were talking about, landlords being required to provide cooling, those things are all state level and local policies. And so pushing your local and state leadership is really important if you want to get in on the policy space. And then I would say nurses are fantastic. I love working with nurses. They are the ones, um, my occupational health nurse friends tell folks as they leave the factory, go home, don't drink a beer, take a cool shower, cool down your body temperature, right? So these are the kinds of very simple messages that public health folks can get out there to the public that don't depend on having air conditioning and actually protect them and may save their lives. Wonderful. Ashley, we could go on and on about this, but I just want to say from the Green Docs that we are so pleased that you are doing what you're doing and that it's so, such an active area in the Southeast because it seems like you are really rising to the challenge. And I love that your focus is beyond just the region of the Southeast, that it's, it's literally national because we need lots more people doing what you're doing and doing it with a level of expertise and enthusiasm that you have. So thank you from us sincerely for doing this kind of work. And we would love to stay in touch and hear about progress as you go forward from here. Certainly. And thank you for having me. Well, so grateful to have Ashley Ward join our podcast and teach us about all the dimensions to heat that uh, we probably didn't didn't know about. Not only the academic and athletic risks, but also all the really smart, dedicated people who are really working with communities at every level, local, state, federal, to protect us in the future. Uh, really grateful to have people like her uh, working on this. Uh, I think one of the most important messages from this are, you know, even during our Thanksgiving episode, is that especially when it comes to health and, and pregnancy health in particular, heat is a year-round topic. I tell my patients all the time, not just because we're in Southern California, where it tends to be warmer, for pregnant women in particular, hydration status and managing heat is, is yeah, it's, it's a year-round thing. The blood volume increases by about 50% in pregnancy. You have to maintain a lot more fluid to keep up with all that extra volume. What I tell my patients, what I'll, what I'll you know, kind of provide in the podcast here, is that pregnant women should be really doubling down on fluid intake, drinking tons and tons of water, almost can't drink too much. Along with that, you should be monitoring how hot your environment is, even if it is during some of the cooler seasons in, in regions that typically you know, don't have really hot fall or, or winter. The ways you can do this are going to, as we have discussed in prior episodes, there are some apps that are really useful. The OSHA Heat Index app in the Apple Store, it's just called Heat Index, will give you minute-to-minute -minute updates on, on how hot it will be in your region throughout the day. 
You can avoid being outdoors during certain times if possible. While you're at it, go ahead and download the EPA Air Now app. It'll look at air quality index because it can help guide your outdoor activity at the same time. And then really be mindful of being able to cool yourself throughout the day, whether that is an option at home with air conditioning or at work with air conditioning, finding cooling centers, and importantly, making evening cooling part of your bedtime hygiene, whether that means having some windows that can be open, some kind of ventilation, because letting off that heat that you've accumulated throughout the day is, is almost as important as keeping it cool during the day in the first place. Yes, and science tells us that you really want to try to get your bedroom down below 80 degrees, if at all possible, in order for your body to, re to recover from the day's heat. Those are very important recommendations. Also, one of the things that the Heat Index app reinforces is this idea of humidity, which contributes to the strain that heat takes on our body. The more humid it is, the more difficult the temperatures are for our bodies to, to deal with. So I think it's really a good idea to not just look at the thermometer, but to try to get information regarding heat and also sunlight and wind in the better scientific studies. They really take all these things into account because it makes a real difference. One of the comments Ashley made was that somebody playing on a tennis court is encountering a different level of heat in terms of the strain that it creates than someone maybe just 100 yards away that's playing on a grassy football field. So a lot of these things do make a difference, but it's very important to accent all of these things. And then on top of that, as we always like to do on this podcast, we want to talk about what you can do wearing your community hat. And since, of course, your primary concern is going to be with your own and your family's conditions, we're talking about that. But when it comes to the community, remember that there are a number of segments, particularly in larger communities, that are probably going to be having a more difficult time than you are in getting to where it's cool. And so promoting policies within your community that actually are things that everybody can use, cooling centers and networks to remind people where these centers are so that they can go and get out of the heat, encouraging your council members to adopt heat protocols and safety standards and plans for heat waves and things like that. And the last thing to throw in from a science standpoint is that we do tend to experience heat. It affects us in a, in a more severe way if we're not used to it. So heat waves coming along in spring or even over the course of winter, as much as they are a surprise and might even be to some degree welcomed by us, are actually more stressful for our bodies than those that occur in the middle of summer when we've already gotten used to the heat and our bodies have acclimatized to it, as it's called. Let's keep all of that stuff in mind. All right. And speaking of community, let's talk Thanksgiving. Let's talk some, some turkey. We do have from the Green Docs some advice on how to have a, you know, maybe healthy Thanksgiving is an oxymoron, but a healthier Thanksgiving and a less toxic Thanksgiving. Not referring to table conversations, just about how you might avoid some chemicals. The first thing to, to look at, and I know this is going to sound like it's very um, maybe geared toward an expensive purchasing, but if possible, organic foods do have fewer pesticides and pesticides do create this hormone disruption we worry about. Remember, the, even though I know organic foods are often sold in very um, expensive grocery stores sometimes, the program is USDA organic. It's a government program that basically just says what uh, is less contaminated with things like pesticides. So organic where possible. Also, since you're going to have a lot of leftovers after Thanksgiving, try to store those in things that are not plastic containers. So glass, ceramic, something that you can heat them up in later also that won't soak in those plastic hormone disrupting resins. Along those lines, when you're cooking all day long on, on Thanksgiving, Try to have things that are like cast iron, uh, stainless steel with non-stick cookware. The kind of stick-free ones often have 
PFOS, which is a list of chemicals that are called forever chemicals. They again are hormone disrupting. And once they get in your system, they don't get out. That's why they're called forever chemicals. For alternatives, you know, uh, cast iron, stainless steel, nonstick are really much better. Ideally, you can avoid canned foods. These often have preservatives uh, like BPA, which again is hormone disrupting. And when you're picking out your turkey, Along the lines of organic, you know, it's not always feasible, but if you have the option for like a heritage turkey, those do have more sustainable kind of raising options and they'll have fewer chemicals in them. I'm getting hungry. Yeah. So And thirsty. <laughs> Are you ready for a mocktail? I am always ready for a mocktail, but let us celebrate Thanksgiving and make a toast with a mocktail. What do you have? Let's do it. All right. So on the theme of Thanksgiving, I have a cranberry ginger mocktail. It's a mix of those two, about uh, two parts ginger beer, one part cranberry. Apparently, you can dress it up if you were like doing this for a family party. You could do some orange zest or some sugar along the rim. But for today, I've just mixed the two pretty simply. How about you? Well, I had ginger beer at lunch today. But this afternoon, I'm having my yerba mate tea with some fizzy water and a slice of lime. And it's in a glass, not a plastic cup. I feel like I'm not going to get any forever chemicals with this mocktail. Cheers to Thanksgiving, Nate. Salud. Okay, I'm not going to say much about mine. I think it's a fail. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well. Those do happen sometimes. These have not had a thousand batting average on our mocktails. Well, I will say this one turned out really well, the cranberry ginger beer. Ginger beer, first of all, just has kind of a heartier flavor, tastes more like a real drink. The cranberry is kind of a seasonal flavor. And, you know, these are not always intended for pregnancy. Some people might be drinking, not not drinking alcohol for other reasons. But for pregnancy in particular, ginger is a really good flavor to add to a mocktail because it is natural calming for nausea and vomiting. My attending in residency would say there's Two places in the world you see ginger ale in really high amounts, airplanes and labor and delivery. They work well on both. All right. Well, we are grateful for all the mocktails, the the ones that work and the ones that don't. Either way, we hope you learn something and take something away from this. A new episode of Green Docs will be out every other Thursday, except for this one coming up. Our Thanksgiving episode will come on Tuesday prior to Thanksgiving. So you can have your recipes uh, ready for the big day. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss anything. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening content. Or go to our website, greendocspodcast.com. You can check out the show notes. We do put a lot of time into those, so please check out the links. And uh, send us comments. We'll be answering questions on the next episode. This episode of Green Docs was created by Bruce Picard and Nate DiNicola and produced by Podcast 411. Each episode is not only free of forever chemicals, but it's organic, gluten-free, free-range, fragrance-free, cruelty-free, fresh-squeezed, and will never, ever involve regrettable substitution with dull, or unimportant guests. Check out our website, greendocspodcast.com, where you can like and subscribe, tell your friends. Have a great turkey day. We'll see you soon.